Heavenly Father, I'm thankful to be back, Father. I'm thankful that our study of Matthew can continue. And I'm thankful, Father, that even when I'm gone, the word of God is proclaimed here and done well. And Father, that is a a thanks we put in your lap for you are the one, Father, who has written it. You are the one who's provided it. And you're the one, Father, who calls men and women to study and teach it. And we thank you that you love your people so much that you will not leave them without your word. And uh, Lord, as we've studied it in years now and, and months and weeks and days as we've gone through this study patiently, we've learned a lot. There's a lot more to learn. And so we come every week, Father, with that expectation that something good is going to happen today. Something in the Word today is going to stir our hearts. There's something here for us. But, Father, I pray that we're not forgetting what we have learned. I pray, Father, that what we gather is not put aside as quickly as it enters our minds, but rather it is stored and it is preserved in our hearts, Father, and that's something you also do. And you bring these things back to mind in a day when it matters. And I do... Pray, Lord, that as we hear these things again in that day to come, that we'll act on them. Just as Pastor Charlie reminded us, uh, there are those moments in life, Father, when you ask us to make the right choice. And as we do, Father, we glorify you. And what we learn tonight, Father, may be part of how you prepare us to make that pleasing choice. So we want to be ready for it. Help us be ready. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three weeks is long enough that I am fairly confident you don't remember anything that we've been doing. Uh, and if, if you're the exception to the rule, I'm sorry. But uh, usually that's what happens. We just, we are, we're busy, life is busy, and then we get into a study and then we move on for a while, we come back and we don't remember. So my job tonight is, in part, is to remind you of what we're doing. And when we last joined the disciples, it was at the beginning of chapter 17, they were with Jesus, three of them, Peter, James, and John, on a high mountain, we're told, and somewhere in the northern region of Judea, they witnessed the Lord in his glory. And I'd like to just reread that passage as a way of reminding us of what we've studied and where we're going. I'll just start again in verse 1. Matthew 17 reads, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright light overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified, and Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Well, I read a little beyond what we did last week, so this just puts the two together, what we studied before and what we're looking at tonight. A week had gone by and they're now on the top of this high mountain. A week earlier than that, you remember Jesus had promised some of his disciples that they would not die until they would see the glory of his reign. And this is the moment that he fulfills that promise to these three men. Peter, James, and John are given this special opportunity to see Jesus in the glory that he will have in the day that the kingdom comes to earth. He's said to be transfigured here, coming from the same Greek word that we get metamorphosis from. He's a completely changed appearance moving from that lowly earthly form that no one thought much of, really, 
to a totally different appearance, a glorified heavenly form. And as I said, that's the form we will see him in in the kingdom. And to see the king in his glory is to see the glory of the kingdom. For they are one and the same. The glory of the kingdom is nothing apart from the king himself present in it. So in that sense, it's very much the case that they have seen the glory of the kingdom. At least as much as anyone could see it before it actually arrives. And that opportunity came as a result of a terse exchange, you remember, at the end of chapter 16. The exchange between Jesus and and Peter in which uh, Peter had first rebuked Jesus, somewhat unwisely, we would note, for saying that he was gonna die. And then Jesus responded to what Peter said by rebuking Peter for his misplaced priorities. Peter had been trying to hold on to the world that he knew here and now, including having Jesus here with him, while Jesus was speaking about things to come and a world to come. And his death was necessary to bring many sons to glory in that kingdom. But Peter didn't see it. Peter couldn't understand it because he wasn't looking at things from an eternal point of view. And that brought about this moment because the only way that these men were ever gonna gain an eternal point of view was if they got a glimpse of what was coming. And I think this is the single greatest challenge facing every Christian. This situation right here, as you seek to follow Jesus, you have to try to live with an eternal perspective. That is, you have to have an appreciation that this world is passing away and the next one is the one that truly matters. In effect, the challenge of Christian living is to live in the next world according to its values and priorities even while you still exist in this fallen world. And you have the enemy, and you have your flesh, and you have the world at large, all conspiring to direct your attention to what is here and what is now. And if you're not focused and aware of this challenge in your walk with Christ, those conspirators will will do their work. They will weaken your walk with Christ. They will cause you to focus your life here in such a way that you try to make it heaven for yourself now. And as a result, you do things like spending most of your time while you're on earth uh, trying to gain what it offers, trying to experience it as much as you possibly can. Because the world would tell you that's what you're supposed to do, right? (laughs) That's what the whole world thinks. They say, you know, you gotta have your best house, you gotta have your, 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 you know, the nice car, the right job, the right spouse, uh, the healthiest body, the best retirement fund. Those are sort of the ticking list of, of goals for everybody on life, more or less. But if you buy into that, before you know it, you're just living in this world as if it's the only world that matters. In fact, you may be living like it's the only world that exists. That was the instinct that drove Peter in that earlier moment. He reacted in his flesh to oppose Christ's plan of redemption. I mean, think about that for a moment. You think this guy may have ever looked back on that moment and just said to himself, what was I thinking? Right? I mean, of course he did. Uh, It's... You know, it's, it's obvious why he didn't understand it in the moment. We're not going to pick on him. But, you know, there's those moments where you did something you didn't realize and you look back later and you just wish you could go back in time. I think this might have been one of, well, probably among several in the Gospels that Peter was thinking, I wish I could go back in time on. Because he was literally trying to stop the plan of God to save the world. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. And Jesus obviously tells him, you're not going to do that. His instinct came out of this desire that thought this world was what mattered. And therefore your life matters, right? And that was not an eternal perspective. Peter's poor choice was in trying to preserve earthly life 
rather than to meet eternal goals. That's the challenge of Christian living. I mean, if you think Peter's unique, you haven't looked at your own life very closely because our entire walk with Christ, the struggles of our life, really center on this one concern. Operating with an upside-down perspective like that and therefore making short-sighted choices. Jesus says that the response to Peter's comments after he does what he does, Jesus says, if your goal is saving your life, here and now that is, you put at risk the life you will receive in the kingdom. Not your salvation, but the nature of that life. The rewards in it. The privilege it might bring. The quality of it, in some sense, suffers when you don't please Christ now. That's the teaching of the, of the scriptures. Now, if Peter had had an eternal perspective in that moment, what would he have done? Well, he would have embraced the plan of Christ on the cross, and, and he would have done so knowing what it was about. Now, I'm not saying he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have been sad to see it happen. I mean, if we had been there, if we could go back in time and be there and see it happen, we'd all react with the same emotional concern that would be natural for, for anyone under those circumstances. I mean, emotions are what they are. But intellectually, Peter could accept and he could support the plan if he saw it the way God saw it, or as I like to say, if he had eyes for eternity. That's why this church puts so much emphasis on studying the Bible, by the way, because understanding the Bible is fundamentally a process of gaining the mind of Christ. And as you gain the mind of Christ, you gain an eternal perspective to go with it. And the more you saturate your mind with the Bible, the more the truths of that come to rest in your heart, the more you will see the world the way Jesus sees it. This world and the next. The more you'll anticipate the kingdom. And the more that you anticipate the kingdom, the more you will adhere to its priorities and values even now. You'll start living like you're there. So studying is a key to seeing the kingdom as a more present reality than the world is around us. I like to say it this way. The more you know about the next world, the more that world becomes real and the more this world stops feeling real. The more this world doesn't matter anymore. Yes, you do your best to get through it in a good way, with a good witness, bringing as many people with you as you go into the kingdom. Yes, we have a reason to be here, but it doesn't matter to us any more than that. That's an eternal perspective. And it is a good thing, friends, because the more that world becomes real to you, the more your decisions here will reflect its priorities and in a kind of ironic, uh, uh, virtuous cycle here, the more of that world you'll actually gain when you get there. It works to your advantage in the long run. That's why Jesus gave these men this vision. In a nutshell, this is about moving their perspective to a kingdom point of view through a moment, giving them a taste of what that future world's going to be like, giving them a memory of what Jesus looks like and the way that they will see him in that day to come. And then they carry that new perspective forward in their walk with him and in the kingdom program work that they're going to have to lead for this church. And as we saw last time we looked at this passage, Peter, you know, he kind of misunderstood the whole moment. He wants to build booths for these people because he thinks he's in the kingdom already and that's part of what happens in the kingdom. I mean, I, we went into that last time. Okay, fine. He didn't see it quite then, but we know that in fact, in time, Peter adopted that very perspective. How do we know that? Because we have his writing. And in 1 Peter chapter one, listen to the words of a man who is living with an eternal perspective. He says, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which, which were yours in your ignorance, 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, well then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You hear that man talking about, think about the future, concern yourself with how you live now because you know you're gonna see a judge who will look back on what you did when you were here on earth. Not again for the purpose of condemnation, only for the purpose of reward, but that's the moment we want to do well in. We wanna please Christ, that is our goal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right? Whether we are home with the Lord or absent, our goal is to please Christ. That is whether we're here on earth or whether we're present with him in heaven. Our goal will always be the same, pleasing Christ. So he teaches the rest of us to fix our hope on Jesus. So back to the moment. That's what's going on here. This isn't just about a little light show, a little bit of temptation for them to see the future. This is about them being prepared to see the ministry that they have from an eternal point of view, of knowing where they're going. And so after you hear the voice of God, the vision ceases, they find themselves alone with Jesus again. He's back in his normal appearance. And then they begin to descend the mountain. I mean, it's such an abrupt end to something so amazing. You almost wish that they probably just wanted to sit down for a moment and process a little bit, you know? But they just, they just start moving down. And then the kicker, Jesus says, don't tell anybody what you just saw. They could only speak of it, he says, after Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any more detail than this, but Luke adds that they did exactly what they were told, that in fact, these men never said anything to the other disciples until after the resurrection of Jesus. That just begs us a question, though. It begs the question of, if this was such an important vision for the purpose of establishing these men in an eternal point of view, well, then why not have him share it with the rest of the disciples right away? Well, first of all, we know they did share it eventually because they, they were supposed to. We, we have this in our scriptures now because it was shared. I mean, that's why Matthew knows about it, right? And furthermore, Jesus never said never share it. He just said not right now. And all of that makes sense when you think about it. But think about the struggle that those other men have already had in trying to process what Jesus has been telling them about the future concerning his death. None of them are getting it. They don't get that he's gonna die, much less why. They certainly don't know he's leaving for a time. And so anything they're hearing about that state of affairs seems to be beyond their ability to comprehend. Jesus, though, has been planting all of that as seeds you know, for the future. He knew that if he shared this story, imagine if those three guys had come down babbling like children about what they had just seen. What kind of reception do you think they're gonna get? I think Jesus understood those men would neither have received it nor understood it, much less benefited from it. I mean, it's one thing to to see it yourself. It's another thing to hear about it secondhand. I don't think it would have had the same effect. But think forward a bit. After Jesus dies and after he resurrects, That was a period of great uncertainty and worry for the disciples. They didn't understand what was happening. They thought their movement had failed. They thought Jesus had been crushed. They thought their hopes had been dashed. There wasn't gonna be a kingdom. There wasn't gonna be a Messiah. They believed in the wrong guy, maybe. They had all kinds of worries and doubts. And in that moment, Jesus was not going to be there to explain it to them. But these men were. And that's when giving them an explanation based on that first-hand encounter was gonna not only make sense, that's when it would do the most benefit. They'd have this vision to reassure the disciples that all was well, don't worry, we've seen where this is going, and the end of the story is we like to say Jesus wins. That's what they would be there to tell them. And so John, James, and Peter were selected 
by Jesus to have this moment so that when they assumed leadership roles in the early church, they had the eternal perspective from which the rest of the church could then receive it and benefit from it. Now, having said that, Jesus did not select Peter, James, and John because of anything that they inherently brought to the table. And that's something we need to remember too. These guys are not better than the rest of the disciples. I mean, they're just fishermen. I mean, the Gospels give us nothing about their qualifications. In fact, the only qualification that they had to serve Jesus was that Jesus selected them. That was it. And that is a fact that we can all take some heart in. That is, no one serves Jesus because they are qualified. We only serve him because he qualifies us. And he asks us to serve him. He ta- you've heard me say this, I'm sure. He takes unqualified men and women, and then he gives us a new heart by faith. He then gives us the, the equipping we need to serve him in some new fashion. And he calls us in that unqualified state, but he does not leave us untrained or unprepared. That's a process, yes, but he, he does all the work. He, he bestows on us gifts, spiritual gifts. He brings us knowledge by his word. He corrects our sinful behaviors by conviction, and then he rewards our obedience. And there are some that he will call within the body to even greater service, and to these he will give even greater investments of his grace. That's what you see going on with the twelve. He took 12 men from among a crowd. He called them apostles. He he started teaching them in very specific ways and and gave them experiences that the crowds never heard or never saw. And then he empowered them to do ministry in ways that were quite special. And then he takes three of the 12. And he says to these three, you're going to get even greater privilege and you can't even share it with the rest yet because a day will come when it will be the right time. He pours in to those three men in a new and better way because of what they were going to be called to do. Keep in mind, this is not about a a person being elevated because they showed that they were worthy of elevation. That's a human way of doing things. That's the way businesses work and, and generally everything works. That's fine. That's not the way God works. If it were down to who's qualified to serve God, do you know how many people would serve God, right? Zero. None of us are qualified. And by qualified, I mean... They don't, we don't bring anything to the table that God doesn't already have. You think about it, that's why you hire someone, by the way, generally. You hire them because they can do something you can't do without. They have something you don't have. They, they bring something you don't already have available, right? Give God something he doesn't already have. There's no such thing. So God's not calling any of us because we bring something to the table. In fact, all we bring is trouble. And as a pastor, I'm firsthand experience with some of that already. All we bring is trouble. So the point is, what does he do in his choices? He's not doing it on the basis of the individuals and their potential. He's doing it on the basis of his sovereign decision for what they will be called to do. Those who he calls, he equips. So Peter was the chief apostle in the early church. He was the one we heard earlier that received the keys to the kingdom. He was the one that through that methodology we discussed, he opened the church to all people groups in in quick order. Then you have James. James was ultimately the leader of the very first church, the one in Jerusalem. And as a result, one of the earliest martyrs of the church. He kind of showed the way into martyrdom for the early church. And John, of course, was the last apostle. So if Peter was the first, John was the last. That is, he was the one who lived the longest. He carried the leadership of the church all the way into the end of the first century. And in each of their cases, they're men who, who wrote scripture in some cases, or they were the men who led the church from the point of view of early congregations. They had this weight on them. And you know, when you have a, a responsibility, you need additional equipping to handle that responsibility, and God gave it to these men. 
That's what he does. It's summed up in a beautiful phrase that we all know really well from scripture, to whom much is given, much is required. That's the way you need to see this. It's not to whom has much to offer, much will be allowed. Or It's who is given much, that sets the bar for what they then have to go do. And it's in that order. So anyway, they begin walking down the mountain. And as they prepare to rejoin the disciples, they start to reflect. Here's that, that little moment I talked about where they just need to process. And as they're reflecting, a question comes to mind. And we read that in verse 10. It says, and his disciples asked him, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and he said, well, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is gonna suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. All right, well, there's a little bit of complexity here, a little bit of mystery. Let's unravel it. You have the two men that appear beside Jesus in the vision, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, if you remember. And Elijah, the one representing the prophets, he's a fairly unique character in the Old Testament. In fact, he's very unique among all the prophets, and particularly because his life pictures Jesus in a number of interesting ways. He, if you remember, he raises a widow's son from the dead at one point in Nain, the the town of Nain, and Jesus does exactly the same thing. He raises a widow's son in the town of Nain. Uh, Elijah's life on earth ended without his body undergoing decay, as will Jesus. His body never goes through decay. And Elijah is the only prophet besides Jesus who is foretold to return to the earth one day. And that's specifically in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, one of the shortest chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, I'll read the whole chapter to you. It reads this. Malachi 4.1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's it, chapter four of Malachi. And in what are essentially the final words of the Old Testament, Malachi prepares Israel for what would come next in God's plan for them. First, he says, there is a day of judgment coming for the whole earth, for all evildoers. And he says, at that time, there will be those who are God-fearing, which is an Old Testament way of saying believing. And they, he says, will have a dawning of a new age of righteousness where they're healed and they restore them, they're, they're restored to perfect health and glory. Now, obviously, that's a reference to the coming kingdom. So you have these, this juxtapositioning of two truths, that the end of the world is met with a fiery, fierce judgment, and for those who are God-fearing, it leads into a time of glory in the kingdom. This is generally the end times that we all know about. By the way, if any of this interests you, I have a study on Tuesdays you might like to know more about. We'll be talking about some of this very stuff in the next couple of weeks. All right, so this is the promise from Malachi that came to mind 
for those men when they walked down the hill with Jesus because they saw Elijah and it was, you know, it was obviously a, it made an impression on them and they thought, I wonder why Elijah's in that vision. And somebody else must have said, and why is he supposed to come back again anyway? And then they realized, oh, we have Jesus here. Jesus, why is this going on? And they ask him. And Jesus responds, but now the response he gives here only really hints at the full explanation. He says, very shortly, he says, Elijah is coming to restore all things. That's kind of the extent of which he gives them. And I really doubt that the apostles or the disciples that were with him understood that revelation very well at the time. I don't think Jesus really expected them to. And part of the reason why it was outside their reach was I don't think they could have possibly anticipated how far Israel was going to fall in the future from that day. Because what Jesus was speaking about here when he says that Elijah comes back to restore Israel, he's speaking here about Israel returning to observing the law of Moses. That's what restoring means. Malachi told Israel this. If you remember, right before he says that Elijah's coming, in verse four of that chapter, he says that they should continue in observance of the law, keep doing the law of Moses just as had been commanded them. That was one of the parting words of God to the nation of Israel before the end of the the Old Testament ended, what we call the intertestamentary period, the period between Malachi and Matthew. Right before they go into a period of 400 years of silence from their prophets, God says, keep doing the law. Don't stop doing the law. And in the centuries after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, after Jesus had come and gone, in the centuries after A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed and the people were scattered, Jewish observance of that law began to wane. Keeping the law fully had become impossible without the temple, but even then, the, the other rituals of the law, from the dietary requirements and the feasts and the festivals and so on, those also began to fall away. There was a steady shift away from orthodoxy and toward a more secular style of Judaism. It didn't happen right away, but it slowly took effect over the last 2,000 years, such that today, the typical Jew, and this is a, you know, obviously a general statement, but the typical Jew you might run into, certainly in the Western world, will observe traditional holidays, maybe. Maybe they go to synagogue once in a while, if at all. Uh, they, they probably are not uh, observing dietary restrictions with any great passion, if at all. Uh, some are so entirely secular, they wouldn't even know what those things are anymore. And even if you go into places like Israel itself, where you'd expect to see more orthodoxy, do you realize less than 10%, and some say it's as little as 5% of the Jewish population in Israel observes the law? In any full sense, now there's various versions. We've even come to the point now of calling Jews by various levels depending on their observance. Everything from cultural Jew to observant Jew to orthodox Jew to ultra-orthodox. It's all variations of how much you actually decide you want to do of the Jewish style of life. That is a far cry from the religious life in Jesus' day. I'm not judging what they do. It doesn't really matter how much of the law they keep because they can't keep it. Without a temple, they can't keep their law. They're, they're doing partial keeping at best. But in Jesus' day, when the temple still stood, life centered around the temple and keeping of the law. Now, clearly, no one ever truly kept the law. That's why we need Jesus. But I'm speaking in, in human terms. In how much of its rules could you attempt to keep? In Jesus' day, everyone attempted, for the most part, to keep most or all of them. So when Jesus says there's going to be a day in the future when Israel is going to have reached a stage of apostasy that is so entrenched that God must send a dead man back from the grave, so to speak, and reappear before his own people so that he can stimulate them into 
a new concern for the law and a new interest in the law, that says something about just how far gone the people of Israel will be in that day. And the reason God goes to the effort to do that is because observing the law is a crucial issue for Israel in order for them to receive their Messiah in the last days. How God brings Israel to himself at the end of this age is a great story that we cover in the Revelation class. And it centers on Israel's knowledge of the law. Because the law isn't just for the purpose of guarding Israel from corruption or giving his people a a common identity. Yes, it accomplished those things. But it also taught important principles about sin and holiness and about sacrifice and atonement and about judgment and forgiveness. And you have to understand those principles as a Jew in order to anticipate and receive a Messiah when he comes for them. But if Israel isn't looking for a Messiah, if they've lost sight of those principles because they aren't engaged in any kind of religious life whatsoever, what would happen if the Lord returns to them in some future day and his return is met with a shrug of indifference from a group of people who don't even understand why you need a Messiah and what sacrifice is about? And that's why the Lord, in his grace, prepares the hearts of his people to receive their Messiah when he comes. And he doesn't just do it at the end of this age. He did it both in the first coming and he will do it before the second coming of the Lord. In the case of his first coming, who was the one who came? Well, in verse 12, Jesus says, I say to you that Elijah already came. And at first, that sounds like he's saying Malachi 4 has already been fulfilled, doesn't it? But it quickly becomes apparent that he's just using uh, the the term Elijah here in another way. Because in verse 13, Matthew quickly clarifies that Jesus was actually speaking of John the Baptist, not the literal Elijah. But in effect, he compares John the Baptist to Elijah, calling him a type of Elijah, a kind of Elijah. In fact, John himself, in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 21, John himself, in response to a question, are you the Elijah, he denies it. He says, no, I am not Elijah. So we have John's own words denying that he's Elijah, and we have Matthew here clarifying that that's not what Jesus meant to say. What he's saying is, in effect, John's ministry was like Elijah's ministry, but in a different day. John the Baptist was the man that God called to prepare Israel to receive Jesus in his first coming. And John the Baptist did so. He called the nation to a heart of repentance, saying the kingdom of God was at hand. The Messiah would be coming soon. And then when Jesus was revealed... John the Baptist was the one that announced him to the world at that moment of baptism. But then Jesus goes on to say, the effect of John the Baptist's ministry was not national conversion. In fact, it wasn't even a general acceptance of Jesus. Apart from a few, the, the nation rejected Jesus. And ultimately, because they rejected what John the Baptist said, they abused him and they killed him. And Jesus says, if they did that to the one who announced me, they're gonna do it to me also. John the Baptist's circumstances reflected the heart of the people of Israel in that day, and so it also was a predictor for what Jesus would experience in that day. But here's the interesting connection between these two men. John the Baptist was the forerunner for the first coming, and in that he becomes a type or an example of what Elijah will do before Jesus' second coming. That is to say, there is yet still A day coming when the real Elijah will come back to the earth as God will supernaturally bring him back. And when he does, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, we're told, it will be a forerunner for the second coming of the Lord. 
And that will be an event that begins to move Israel back to orthodoxy in preparation for them to one day receive that Messiah when he comes. But the effect of Elijah's ministry will be very different than the effect of John the Baptist's ministry according to what the Bible says. Malachi 4.6, which we just read, says Elijah's return to the people of God will result in the hearts of the fathers being restored. And that's a bit of a cryptic phrase, but here's what it means. In literal Hebrew, it reads, he will restore the hearts of fathers to sons. That, in other words, the fathers of Israel, which is a term for the leaders, the leaders of the, of the nation, they will find their hearts becoming like sons' hearts. That is, childlike faith, softening and turning back to the Lord. That's what he means by turning. Some have read this very, very kind of simply and said, oh, it's gonna mean he's gonna restore families. Look, friends, that's, that's important. That is not the highest thing on God's priority list right before the end of the age, right? This is not about, you know, the family becoming a stronger unit. This is about something much better, much different. It's about the hearts of Israel turning back to something they once knew. Father's hearts becoming more like son's hearts. And those son's hearts returning to the fathers, which is a terminology for the, the, the patriarchs of long before. So in other words, as a result of Elijah's appearing, those future Jewish leaders who are hardened in their hearts and uninterested in the law and not uh, keeping any part of it, will find all of a sudden, as a result of Elijah, this interest in Moses and David and their faithfulness in the law and the meaning of following the law and a desire to follow the law. And as they return to orthodoxy, they return to the traditions of the fathers, so to speak. And that's a huge advantage for Jesus because the Bible tells us that in the last days of this age, a temple will reemerge on the Temple Mount. Not one that God will occupy, not right away, but one that will be used to usher in the very last events of this age. And if you have a temple, you need Jews at the temple sacrificing. I ask you today, if a temple reemerged today, how many Jews in New York and Miami would get on a plane, buy a goat, and go slit its throat in a building somewhere in the middle of Jerusalem? I venture to say very few. I like to joke that most of them belong to PETA. (laughs) And it's probably true. So my point is this, clearly you don't move the hearts of Jews worldwide into sacrifice simply because a temple shows up. But somehow in the mysterious supernatural appearing of their past prophet Elijah, they're gonna be moved to that. And it will set the stage for the last day's events. That's what Jesus is describing here when he answered his disciples. He said, Elijah is coming and he will restore the hearts as God intended. But then he adds to this, Just understand, that's a future event. They didn't understand the big picture that Jesus himself would soon die, that he would soon depart. And Jesus turns this question back to that point very quickly. And so quickly, in fact, it kind of begs a question for us, doesn't it? His answer is barely an answer. It's almost as if he's not interested in that conversation at all. Jesus wanted to emphasize the more immediate concern for them, which is you need to understand what's coming for you. You need to understand, I'm gonna die. This is gonna change. Something's coming next. It's part of the plan, but you need to be on board with the plan. And right now, you're too busy thinking about things you will not have to worry about for quite some time. And I think that's the lesson I wanna leave you with tonight out of the text, which is this. There are things to come which interest us, and the Bible describes them, and we can and we should learn them. Tuesday nights for us in in our study of Revelation is all about that pursuit, and it's a healthy pursuit. But like these disciples, there are other truths, more present concerns, 
that should be your focus in your walk with Jesus. That is, for all the interest we have in these future events that are so exciting for us, that's fine, but do not let them overshadow the things of living today that are truly the focus for Jesus in our life. And what is the chief thing he wants us to be concerned with now? The chief thing he wants us to be concerned with now is saving those around us, that is, being an ambassador for Christ, so that when those events kick off, they don't have to suffer through them. And that when the events of the kingdom begin, they'll be there with us. Jesus says this in Luke, and it's a very interesting comment that I think presents a footnote of sorts to what we studied tonight. Jesus says in Luke 18, 7, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I love that statement. He says, God's gonna bring justice for you. Don't worry, the end's coming. When it comes, he's gonna do it all the right way. Justice will come. He kind of sets our assurances that the future is taken care of. And then he says, you know, but when I come, I wonder what I'm gonna find. In other words, will I find faithfulness? And there's a very interesting coupling here. He's saying, in effect, don't worry about God's faithfulness. He'll take care of just what he said. But my question to you is, what about your faithfulness? That's really the way he phrases that statement. He's saying that one of the promises is is that he will return. And when it comes, there's a judgment. And when he comes to judge, there's a reward. And all of that is coming, yes. But the goal in our life now is not to be necessarily an expert on those events, though we can be. Our goal is to be prepared for those events. That's a different set of activities. In Mark 13, Jesus says this, take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge assigns to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. But I say to you, I say to you all, be on the alert. That's a parable, but it's not hard to explain, is it? Be on the alert means be ready. Be ready for the fact that when your life ends, the next one begins, and you don't get a do-over. We won't be able to stand there and say, I didn't think it was coming quite this soon. I was hoping I could finish these other things before I did that discipleship. Well, you know, there you have it. The ever-present expectation for every believer is that Christ will return for us at any time. Now, I want you to notice something there. He said in the passage I just read, he could come at any time. And yet we know from Malachi 4 that Jesus cannot return until Elijah comes, right? How do you square those two up? Different returns. Different returns. There's the return of Christ to the earth, the second coming. It's, it's actually got some things that have to happen before it can happen. And then there's another thing. There's the return of Jesus for us, for the church, And his return for the church is an ever-present, always possible moment. It doesn't depend on anything. It's the moment in which he comes to collect the bride, at which point judgment happens for the church. So while we know that there's still stuff yet to happen, we're like those disciples who want to know all that stuff, and Jesus is turning the, 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 the conversation back just a little. He's not denying the value of that, and he's not necessarily discouraging us from pursuing knowledge of it, but what he's saying is, Whatever you learn there, don't forget, the thing you need to be ready for is something else. My return to collect you 
and bring you back with me, as he says in John 14. And the question for us is, when he comes, will the Son of Man find faith? Not literally, will he find believers? That's not the question. He's saying, will he find us sleeping? Will he find us lulled into a pursuit of the world, oblivious to the reality of the next world? Or will he find us ready for him? And readiness means obedience. A life sold out for him. Making this life secondary to that one. You know, making the choices that reflect that. Seek to make whatever changes in your life are necessary to ensure that you are living for the world to come and not for the one today. Be ready for Jesus because he's coming soon. And I pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, exhortations are one thing. Actions are quite another. And even myself, Father, as I exhort, I don't always obey my own words, much less yours. And I pray, Father, that every heart would hear, every mind would be attentive to the things that must be done, and every, every person here, Father, would have the courage to follow through. We, just, we don't know when you're coming, and we know it could be at any point, and we want to be ready. So thank you, Lord, that we get a reminder today. Help us make the most of it. We ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious to us and forgiving for the days that we have wasted, whatever that might look like for each person here, and that you would direct us forward into a better walk each day that remains, something that will please you, something that puts the next world above this one. We know, Father, that's your call for us in the scriptures, and that we want it to be our witness to all that we interact with, both in this body and elsewhere in the world. Let us be an ambassador that that brings you much glory in the days to come, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.